Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. It's a funny thing about origin stories, who we are, how we got here, each one of us, whole nations of us. We know going in that the stories are made up one way or another, and we come to find out that a lot of them are just plain wrong. Then what? The Sunday Magazine of the New York Times took a bold run this past summer at the year 1620 as the start of the American story. The year, of course, when the Mayflower landed about 100 dissenting English Puritans, our pilgrims, at Plymouth Rock. But no, the Times argued our first chapter was dated 1619, a year earlier, when a ship bearing some 20 African slaves landed in Point Comfort, Virginia, which was to say the drive to implant a slaveocracy in the New World had a step on building a temple of freedom. Nicole Hannah-Jones is the writer and editor who led what the Times called a major initiative at the paper to reframe American history. And she strikes the keynote of this radio hour around slavery and the foundations of U.S. history. Peter Leinbaugh is a transnational historian of economics and culture. He's been tracking the privatization of common land, when, how, and why in England and the New World. 1792 is his magic start date of what's now the world system. Slavery had everything to do with it. The historian Philip Deloria has a Native American angle on what those colonists were up to in the 1600s. The thread here is going to be storytelling that explains and often hides what happened. Nicole Hannah-Jones, congratulations to you on the 1619 version in The Times since August. It seemed to me, if I may say, the boldest, maybe bravest editorial initiative at The Times since the Pentagon Papers in 1971, the inside story of planning the war in Vietnam. I'd love you to start by just telling us how you came to the vision in that story. And always the key question in big journalism is, then how did you get it in the paper? (laughs) Juan, thanks for having me on the show. And I'm actually very excited to talk about origin stories because that's clearly the focus of the 1619 Project. I first came across the date, 1619, as a high school student. And I'm glad you mentioned a ship called the Mayflower because I came across the date in a book by historian Lerone Bennett called Before the Mayflower. Mm. And of course, the entire conceit of that book is to talk about how the history of people of African descent and the history of slavery predates this moment in time that all Americans learn about, which is the Mayflower. But there was another very important ship that landed on these shores a year earlier that few American students ever learned. My high school offered a one-semester Black Studies course, and I I took that course and in that three and a half months learned more about black Americans and people of African descent than I'd ever learned in my entire 11 years of education mm. at that point. And I kind of obsessively began to read the history of black people and race in America. Even when the course ended, I would always ask my teacher to give me another book. And at some point, that's when he gave me a Lerone Bennett's book. And seeing that date was really like a lightning bolt to me because I realized there was a intentional decision 
that we are taught about the Mayflower in 1620 mm-hmm. and not the White Lion in 1619. And even as a high school student, I understood that that was an intent to craft a certain narrative and to obscure other narratives that were inconvenient. So I've literally been thinking about that date and what it meant that most Americans don't know that date for 25 years. I've also, in the last couple of years, been thinking a lot about this anniversary that was approaching, that this was the 400th year of that landing and of the first enslaved Africans being sold into the British North American colonies. And really thinking this momentous occasion, which I think clearly fundamentally altered who we became and who we would become as Americans. And here I am at the New York Times, uh, one of the largest news organizations in the world, and I had the opportunity to do something about that. So I decided I was going to pitch this project that really was about fulfilling kind of what my lifelong work has been, which is to show that we are still living daily with the legacy of slavery, that it didn't end in 1865. It certainly didn't end in 1968 with the last uh, passage of the last civil rights bills, but that all across all aspects of American life, whether we know it or not, um, you can draw these connections back to the legacy of slavery and the anti-Black racism that developed. And and that was really the conceit of the magazine, was that it wasn't going to be a history, but it was actually going to be an excavation of the ongoing and modern legacy. The beauty of 1619, it seems to me, is its breadth. It takes in slavery as the foundation of our wealth, our peculiar American winner-take-all capitalism. There's a brutal streak in our work life that's rooted in historical memory of slavery. It's the seedbed of our popular culture and much else. It's not about the years, obviously. It's about the orthodox line from de Tocqueville, actually, to the Harvard Colossus Perry Miller in the 20th century, that the whole destiny of this country is contained in those first Puritans. A story now that I must say feels provincial. It's always been provincial to black folks and indigenous folks. I mean, we could never take that narrative because that narrative never included us and that narrative always silenced the actual experiences on the ground of of what was occurring. I want you to tell the story of your father's sort of American flag patriotism. A man had suffered severely, lifetime, from racism, and yet a devout believer. Yeah, so I wrote the opening essay for the 1619 Project, and I begin that essay talking about how my father always flew this American flag in our front yard and how, when I was a child, I was deeply embarrassed by that outward sign of patriotism because I did not feel that black people were treated as full citizens. I saw my dad's own life, all of the discrimination that he felt. I mean, he literally was born in racial apartheid in Mississippi on a cotton plantation where his family sharecropped because black people were not allowed to give birth in the hospital. So I never understood that. I understood that black people have always joined the military at very high rates. And this is actually also true for indigenous people or the two groups that join military at the highest rates of all racial groups. And understanding that this has always been about hoping that if you would fight for your country, that your country might finally recognize your full citizenship. But I didn't understand why you would be so openly patriotic when you did join the military and you still weren't Mm. treated as a full citizen in your country. But... What 
my father understood, and not in a intellectual way, not in the way where, you know, I was reading through history um, way, but what he understood really viscerally was that Black people had fought from the beginning to make the ideals of the Constitution true and that this was our native land. We actually have no other native land and that no one has a greater right to claim the rights of citizenship and to fly that flag than we do. Mm. I'm thinking you've got a lot of help in this general unearthing of a deeper story. I'm thinking Michelle Alexander on the new Jim Crow, but also everything Ta-Nehisi Coates writes, a lot of what Toni Morrison writes. And Isabel Wilkerson, yeah. Amen. Amen for Isabel Wilkerson. But also I'm thinking Jill Lepore, her new big book, very mainstream about these truths, yes. told the story of settlement, short form, two and a half million Europeans come to the New World, 12 million Africans in chains, as many as 50 million Native Americans die, mostly of yes. disease. John Winthrop, we remember for his City on a Hill, but he was also the guy who said of these casualties, black and native, the Lord hath cleared our title to what we possess. I mean, question, with all this work being done and read, are we beginning to get it? Yeah, we are. But, you know, it's not like we were doing original scholarship. We were relying on uh, the exemplary work of academics. But your average person isn't reading a lot of scholarly work. What mass media can do is translate this amazing scholarship that's being done. that's really expanding what we know and how we think about our country and its origins and bringing that to a mass audience. Yeah, it's not exactly scholarship, as you say, not exactly conventional journalism either, but it's very powerfully voiced. You said in that magazine... And I thought this is very bold and beautifully said. Our founding ideals of liberty and equality were false as written in the 18th century. Black Americans fought to make them true. Without this struggle, America would have no democracy at all. Yep. (laughs) Powerful words. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, listen, as you said, this is not traditional journalism. This was a very intentional and explicit reframing in the way that the New York Times uh, does not traditionally do. And clearly understanding that in some ways, um, at least for the common reader, this was a radical reframing. But that was intentional because I think a radical reframing is required. You've been out in the hustings since August, I take it, teaching, talking. What's the response? It's been insane. (laughs) I've been writing about some of those deeply entrenched societal issues my entire career, and I've never seen this type of response to anything that I've done. Really, Mm -hmm. uh, it's been an unprecedented response for anything at the Times. The last time we sold this many copies of the print paper was uh, in 2008 when people wanted the edition the night that Barack Obama was elected as the first black president. So I've been nonstop traveling all across the country. And I hear just again and again, people who are saying, I never knew, I never knew any of this. And I didn't understand the way that we still live with this legacy across all of these aspects of American life. You have one response from black folks who are like, I never felt I could claim my country before and who knew that these conditions were created but didn't have the history uh, to really understand the architecture. You know, some of this for black Americans is not surprising. Some of it is. But for white Americans, nearly everything uh, was surprising. They were seeing their country for the first time and 
really starting to question everything. And then people who are neither white nor black, and particularly people who are immigrants, I think have had to really think about their own place in the racial caste system. And this idea that when you are an immigrant who comes to the United States, you understand that success means distancing yourself from the people on the bottom. And of course, the people on the bottom are black. And instead, realizing that so many of the rights and privileges they have, and really, for many of them, their ability to even be in the United States is because of the Black resistance struggle. And that's really been transformative for a lot of the Black and brown immigrants who I've been meeting as I've been going across the country. Nicole Hannah-Jones of the New York Times and 1619 Project, stand by. Coming up, origin stories about our economic situation, or should we say predicament, the Native American version of these stories, too. This is Open Source. It's the season to tell origin stories, where peoples come from, myth-making, myth-busting in our self-stories. Our guest, Peter Leinbaugh, in Michigan, writes complex, but I must say, Peter, almost addictive narratives about big problems, big ideas. In his new book, it's the conversion of public lands and common ground to private property. Peter Landbaugh, the magic date in your book, in your head, I think, is 1791, maybe 1792. Explain, and what can you trace to that moment in the Industrial Revolution, Napoleon time, colonies time, sugar time in the Caribbean? What I trace to that is this book I wrote called Red Round Globe Hot Burning, a phrase from a working class poet at the time, William Blake. Mm. This was his response to the Haitian revolt against slavery, the first successful slave revolt in world history and the second free republic of our hemisphere. So 1791 and 92, the world is beginning to turn upside down. The French Revolution has begun. Indeed, liberté, égalité, fraternité, its slogans are those that triggered the slaves of Haiti to revolt Mm. and begin to burn the plantation. For 10 years, they fought and defeated three empires. The reverberations of their liberty struggle spread onto the mainland and to the story that we've just heard about 1619. But also in 1791-92, we have the United Irish are formed, that is, for Irish anti-imperialism. We have also the Battle of Fallen Timbers when Native Americans defeat George Washington and the privatizing republic of the USA. Hmm. That year also, we have a Supreme Court justice giving the first history of property at the Penn Law School, denouncing any form of common property throughout human history (laughs) in favor of privatization. His name was James Wilson. He is the man who developed the fraction of three-fifths, that notorious annihilation of the body of African-American slaves. Mm. Of course, for purposes of oligarchic politics among the planters and bankers. Peter, make an explicit connection with that other number, 1619, and the, the narrative of storytelling, false storytelling, re-storytelling that Nicole has been talking about. Yeah, well, I grew up, so to speak, on Lerone Bennett as well, before the Mayflower. 
Hmm. You know, in 1968, already Malcolm X had taught us years earlier to study history. Hmm. And indeed, I was reading in the African American History Museum just a few days ago in D.C. On the wall there, Bell Hooks was saying, to tell our story is to resist. Hmm. But the resistance, you know, we can see other dates like 1609 or even 1526 when slaves come to St. Augustine in Florida. But that's with the Spanish Empire. But 1619 is the presence of enslavement. And this goes with real estate. The property in persons and the property in land are two sides to the same coin. And so the conquest of land, it's divvying up Jefferson. He was the great surveyor. Not professionally, that was George Washington, but but he developed the townships and then you fly over the mainland and you see it's a land of squares, of rectangles. This was the work in 1798 of Jefferson. Mm. So this is a way of privatizing what had before been our mother earth, just as our mother continent is Africa, where the kidnapped children and kidnapped Robbed folk are taken to be enslaved in the Caribbean and on our mainland. So what am I saying? That, that our origin story is a, when we say our, it's in a global context. It's in a, even, I hesitate to say international because the nation itself hasn't really been formed very well. Interesting. Yeah, that's going to be a new project, the nation state. And here I think uh, Native American and indigenous forms of human organization are really important for us as we think of the future, just as other concepts of the earth or of the land are going to be fundamental to us as we think of the future. Because it's that time, the 1790s, when our Anthropocene, the CO2 in the stratosphere, begins to emerge from the chimneys of the Industrial Revolution, you know, when the coal is being burned. Right. That's the other side of slavery is the factory, the plantation and the factory. America and England, you know, they go together at that time. And the person who unites them is Alexander Hamilton. The institution that unites them besides the slave ship is the banks and the merchants, the manufacturers. Peter Leinbaugh, Stand by. I want to introduce a third guest at this table. Philip Deloria is the Harvard professor of history who writes about the Native American perspective and grew up feeling it in South Dakota and Colorado. His big book is Becoming Mary Sully, about the great Native American abstract artist in America in the 1930s. I want to meet the Native Americans seeing the landing at 1619, the landing in 1620. What are we looking at? You know, I'm hoping you'll give me two dates rather than just one. So one would be Mm -hmm. 1495, and the other would be 1788. And 1788, I think, takes us, Nicole, into some of the things that you've really um, elucidated so well for us about thinking about the ways that America has set of false promises that are actually um, have to be sort of battered into existence by African-descended people. Um, Native people show up in 1788 in the U.S. Constitution in ways that are really quite important. But I choose 1495 because this is the year when Christopher Columbus, on his second voyage, captures 1,600 
indigenous people, puts 550 of them on four ships and sends them back to the slave markets in Spain. And what it suggests, I think, to me is that we think about slavery as an Atlantic story, rightly so, um, but slavery is also a continental story. It's one that is an indigenous story, and it goes back into time. The continent is covered with various forms of indigenous slavery. It confronts multiple forms of European slavery or unfreedom mm-hmm. from Spain, from France, from England, from Russia. New hybrid forms are developed across the continent. Indian people participate in the slave trade. But as Andres Resendez has reminded us, between two and a half and five million indigenous people are also enslaved. Mm. And when we think about the demographic collapses of indigenous people at the very beginning of this whole history of colonization, you know, we've been led to think about this in terms of disease, about epidemic disease, and that is not untrue. But the first smallpox shows up in 1519 in the Caribbean. Indigenous people in the Caribbean islands were decimated by 95% of their population before smallpox showed up. And what was the form of that decimation? A form of death slavery or genocidal slavery that was applied across the Caribbean. Phil, I can imagine a Native American thinker today picking up that New York Times magazine and saying, 1619, eh? They buried the lead. This is about stolen labor that built the American economy. But even before that, they stole the land and the people on it. Is that a plausible pushback, Nicole? I don't think it's a pushback. I think we're telling different origin stories. This 1619 project is talking about the beginnings of chattel slavery in the United States and talking about how that decision was foundational to the development of the United States. But clearly, what happens when Columbus lands in Hispaniola and what happens when the colonists land in Virginia And when the Dutch land in New York and the Indian removal that does occur, these are all parts of our origin stories and also making up the kind of genetic fibers of America. I would never argue that this is Hmm. the only origin story and would certainly never try to silence the experiences of others. But I think we have a right to say this was the 400th anniversary yeah. of this, and we want to talk about this origin story. And that's what we did. I'm happy to hear that we don't have to have one story. We could never, right? I mean, I do think it's important to some degree to try to unify these narratives because these are the American story. And it shouldn't be that you learn this origin story if you're taking a Native American studies class and you learn this origin story if you're taking African-American studies. And then if you're just taking regular, quote unquote, American history, then your origins are different. I, I do think to some degree we do need to blend them. But I also think it's fine to look explicitly at different origin stories that are telling us different things about uh, the country we would become. True. Philip Deloria, I'd love to hear you extend your point that the Native American stories and the African slave stories are deeply entwined, as they are, for example, in Toni Morrison's fiction, but in history and in enslavement. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. I mean, I'm completely with Nicole on this. There's no reason that these things can't be simultaneous, right? And can't also have their own solid kind of grounding, right? Where they exist in and of themselves and in which they are in dialogue with one another. I mean, certainly one of the stories that's been really prominent in the scholarship around slavery has been indigenous enslavement of African descended peoples, right? In the, in the American Southeast. This is a critical and important kind of story and they're completely intertwined. At the same time, right, of course, the story about the expansion 
expansion of American chattel slavery has everything to do with the expansion of and the seizing of American land, as Peter would, I think, sort of ask us to think about, right? How do public lands become private? They stop being Indian land and they become public land in the American sort of sense through Mm -hmm. things like the land ordinance of 1785. The stories are intertwined. It is useful at some points to sort of break out the twines and sort of like, you know, hold them up for themselves, but then also to look for the chances in which our narratives can actually come together and speak to one another. Mm. We also think of origin stories because of a relationship to the future. Why are we concerned about the origin story? We're concerned partly to put an end to white supremacist, capitalist, imperialist patriarchy, to quote bell hooks. Mm. And, you know, our rejoicing or our thanksgiving requires us to think about our future as under climate catastrophe. You know? Speak about it. Well, I think we have to reconstitute ourselves. We Mm. have to rethink about what the state is, what the nation is, as our issues are not just of globalization of commodities, but now globalization Mm. of the perturbations of the whole earth system. Mm. Common people suffer from this, first in our cities, and old responses, such as the violence against black people, such as this well, more generalized violence against children. A future idea of us is lacking in the traditional, again, let me say, white supremacist stories of origin. And this is why we need new origin stories from new people on a historical stage whose first goal is not that of capitalist expansion. Nicole, I'd like to go back to Matthew Desmond's piece in the Times Magazine on 1619. He's a sociologist now at Princeton. Mm -hmm. He's talking about the peculiarities of American capitalism, rougher than elsewhere, and its roots in slavery. He said, if today America promotes a particular kind of low-road capitalism of poverty wages, gig jobs, normalized insecurity... One reason is that American capitalism was founded on the lowest road there is to its slavery. Other wonderful writers in the magazine were talking about cultural roots in slavery, especially minstrelsy, popular music of all kinds. Who wants to describe the plain evidences of those roots in our lives today? I'd say... One of the plain roots is that every inch of land of this continent Mm -hmm. was at one point indigenous land, and the process through which it stopped being indigenous land became American public land, became part of a a sort of a, in some cases, a commons, and and then in which it became privatized. These things are all about the the foundations of American wealth, and there's been really interesting kind of work that's been going on around this. For every university that has a slavery project, one might do a parallel project with native lands. Mm -hmm. For example, the University of California basically survives on the wealth of native land for its first 15 or 20 years. Cornell, the single largest American educational institution that begins off native land. So we can think about wealth in these multiple kinds of ways. It is the product of African, African-American bodies. It is also the product of the seizure of indigenous land. And that's a process that doesn't just happen back in the colonial period. It is ongoing throughout the entire course of American history up to the present day. Peter, is there a version? Yes. I think uh, we need to reconceive what property is. We can't delineate 
our Earth just in inches and miles. We have to think of it as a source of life for human beings. And the period that we're discussing is a deep and profound spiritless form of commodity production where everything is produced for one purpose only, that's exchange. The purpose of exchange is profit, and profit arises from these thefts and these enslavements mm. that then will be developed under the commodity system into forms of exploitation and the gig economy that you were describing as low-road capitalism. High-road capitalism or the superhighway capitalism <laughs> is only a speed-up of low-road life. Nicole, the urgency, the modern relevancy, the difficulty, but, but the inescapable revisionism that we're all engaged in. What I was trying to do was answer this question that every black person in America gets, which is slavery was a long time ago. Why don't you get over it? Mm. Um, and I wanted to show that black people can't get over it because this country hasn't gotten over it. But also that the harms of anti-black racism have never been able to be contained simply to black Americans. So the piece on why we're the only Western industrialized country without universal health care that traces that back to anti-black racism and slavery and shows that we are willing to sacrifice millions of white Americans and their health and their lives as long as we think, you know, we're going to be sacrificing a lot more black people. I was trying to make all of these connections that People just don't know and don't have in hopes that this is the way we can actually move forward is by an actual acknowledgement that we are all suffering from this legacy that we have left unaddressed. Spell out that connection as the magazine did between slave history and the absence of the national health system. Well, in general, there was no universal health care. It's kind of the Freedmen's Bureau that comes about to try to treat those freedmen who had just been released from slavery, but not to actually help them, but because disease was starting to spread into white communities and black folks really fighting for universal care. And then you see this progress through time when you have presidents trying to fight for universal health care and white Southerners really um, being able to back this progress down because they don't want black people to receive free health care. And mm. you see this again and again with social programs. You see under the New Deal where racist white Southerners are able to exclude the two professions, agriculture and domestic work, that employed about 80 percent of black Americans from Social Security. Uh, you see it again and again. And you see even today with Medicare expansion. It was the former Confederate states that refused to take the Medicare expansion because of this same history of racism. And so millions of poor people of all races all across the South are not able to get health care uh, because of this legacy. And the polling is on this is very clear that white American support for social programs goes down if they think that large numbers of black people are going to benefit from them. Coming up, retelling our story in the spirit of James Joyce's Stephen Dedalus, who said, history is a nightmare from which I'm trying to awake. This is Open Source.
I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. We are rewriting our national myths, and some of them truly are mythology, with Nicole Hannah-Jones of the New York Times and its 1619 Project, and the historians Peter Leinbaugh and Philip Deloria. I'm thinking of Lincoln's great line in his message to Congress in 1862, we must disenthrall ourselves, and then we shall save our country. How do these stories get rewritten? And start with the one closest to home here, the pilgrims at Thanksgiving in 1621, about a year into the story. We never believed it, really, and then we totally trashed it, and now what have we got? What was that process of rethinking those guys in the big buckles and black hats with Massasoit? Philip DeLoria. This is a reference to a book by David Silverman that I just reviewed called uh, This Land is... Scorchingly, I thought, in the New Yorker magazine. (laughs) Well, it aimed to be scorching, and and I think this is part of the issue, right? And I think this goes exactly to the 1619 Project and the two essays on education and the ways in which reformatting education is a Sisyphean task of pushing the rock up the hill over and over and over and over again when we think we've made progress in sort of reframing narratives, telling stories differently, telling them better. It turns out that those stories completely resurface so you're constantly playing sort of narrative whack-a-mole with these things. One might imagine telling an alternative story or to go after the story that seems to just have so much currency and to go after it really quite hard and to retell those kinds of stories, to deconstruct them and then offer a new story along the same lines. What is the new story? The new story, I think, you know, for if we want to do Thanksgiving, has everything to do with, in my view, the sort of initial treaty that was signed between Wampanoag people and the pilgrims in the March of that year, and that what Thanksgiving looks like is not a Thanksgiving. Uh, Thanksgivings tend to be these sort of moments for the pilgrims of silent reflection and prayer, but what's happening in November of 1621 is a rejoicing, a celebration. They're shooting off a lot of guns. It's the quintessentially American kind of moment. They're doing military drills and shooting Mm. off a lot of guns. And Wampanoag people um, hear this gunfire. They see themselves as part of a mutual defense pact with pilgrims, and they come rushing to their aid with 90 people. So we look at that story of pilgrims and Indians at Thanksgiving, and there's always like four Indians with a, you know, a haunch of venison. And this is not the story, that this is Indian people actually fulfilling their obligations under treaties. And that might lead us to think about the ways in which the United States has never once fulfilled its obligations under treaties to Native peoples. So in some ways, Thanksgiving in that retelling, sort of hopefully opens up a different occasion to talk about a much larger history. It's a wonderful way also to look at the purpose behind these stories. Never explicit, maybe not even conscious, but in the case of the the grade school story of the pilgrims and the Indians, you've pointed out that it's a wonderful way to celebrate one narrow story. It's the New England story. Good, white, religious, Christian folk doing something good for their country, expressive of one possible future, and basically shedding the South and the West and all those difficult mysteries out there and saying, no, New England is the American story. It's a very kind of provincial chauvinist coup, and it held for a long time. 
And it's not coincidental that it takes shape after the Civil War and up through the early part of the 20th century when sort of framing that particular story deals with Jim Crow, deals with white racial terror in the South, deals with the oppression and the destruction of Native people in the West, deals with new labor regimes for all kinds of other people who are coming in, deals with, you know, the eugenics movement. All of these things are sort of hidden, sublimated to that kind of very reassuring pumpkin spice kind of story of Thanksgiving. Mm. That was really well said. Phil. Yeah, I love <laughs> yeah. You can't go wrong with pumpkin Good. spice, right, this time of year. Yeah. Peter Lineboe, speak about the, the general myth of, uh, I don't know, James Watt, the Industrial Revolution, steam power, and what it did to transform and make infinitely more comfortable our lives ever since. Yeah, I would like to talk about that. But first, if I may, I would just like to remind everyone that the histories that we hear about Native Americans, about African Americans, come from a struggle today and come from the struggle that produced Lerone Bennett, that our stories as journalists and scholars are partly a response to struggles of our people who want to know our stories, our past. And I come from a tradition called history from below. And so for us, we're always looking from below, not from on high, not from Cotton Mather's viewpoint, but from Thomas Morton, who set up a multicultural May Day in 1626. I'm not sure I want to romanticize it as Nathaniel Hawthorne did, (laughs) but it presents always a possibility of a new kind of society where we're not the first to see that African-Americans, Native Americans, immigrants, and Irish people or people from Europe have to find ways of living together and fighting against a common enemy. And this, I think, in the history from below is one of the things that can help us. And it's this great triumph of the 1619 Project that opens this up to mainstream readers. Or your hero in the wonderful book, Red Round Globe Hot Burning, uh, Ned Despard, and his wife Kate, an Irish soldier in the British Empire who saw something awful blooming in Jamaica and said no, and he got executed for his insight. You want to tell that story in 25 words or less, Peter? Well, I I can't tell it without telling about his partner, Catherine Despard, or Kate as I call her, because she helped him write his last speech on the gallows. She's an African-American woman, America speaking of the Americas rather than the USA. She was probably from Jamaica, possibly even from British Honduras, but she was certainly described in England as, as a black person. And She wrote the last speech of this uh, revolutionaries in 1803 who saw a world without slavery, saw a world without mass incarceration, which had just begun, saw a world without factory exploitation. Let's remember that 2019 is also the year, the anniversary of 1819, when those cotton factory workers of England revolted in the Peterloo massacre of 1819. So... Our history from below is just being revealed by a fantastic generations of scholarship now. And even though, well, labor history in particular is suffering in our universities, 
But this is uh, Thomas Spence, Jared Winstanley. Here are some of the great commoners who believed in the commons, not as an ideal of romance, but as a practical proposition. They flourished in the 1790s at a time when they opened up roads that we haven't taken. The Industrial Revolution, the disasters of enslavement are passed on to us as if it was inevitable matter of technology. Right. But we've learned from Ed Baptist, for instance, that the single most important tool that increased the productivity of slaves was the whip. So much for the technological fetish. The cruelty and the violence of the system is bound within production itself. Mm -hmm. We live in a moment when white supremacism, racism, high-handed capitalism is still around. I'd like you all just to deal with the process ahead of disenthralling ourselves. Who are the obstacles? Who are the allies? And who's the enemy in this retelling? We all like to think revisionism in a way, but it's hard work. Bill, do you want to give us an outline? And I want Nicole to tell us what's ahead at the Times. Peter, I think, in some ways is articulating certain kinds of futures for rethinkings that seem to be really, really critical. I, I'm deeply skeptical about whether it'll actually happen in the regime of climate change, whether we can actually sort of reformulate and rethink to the point of being able to address any of these kinds of issues. But we, of course, have to have to try. I mean, my... I said 1788 as my other date, and maybe let me say a word about that, which is that if we go to a very familiar piece of writing, the three-fifths clause, and I think this is where these histories start coming together. I pitch this to my students all the time, tell me about the three-fifths clause, and of course they're able to talk about three-fifths. What they don't talk about is that phrase that says, excluding Indians not taxed which places Indians in the Constitution in order to take them out of the Constitution and recognizes them as a separate and distinct political entity. That language is still to be found in the 14th Amendment. And I think what it suggests is the possibility that there are alternative political imaginaries baked within the American constitutional frame. And I say mm. this taking inspiration from Nicole, from your rewriting of that narrative history that would allow us to think about collective possibilities, right, collective identities. When we talk about reparations, one of the ways we might think about these things is what is the collective to which repair is made, and how do we identify that, and how do we think more about that? And is there a way to think about collective kinds of identities moving forward as opposed to, and I suspect Peter would chime in here as well, sort of the liberal subject, the white liberal subject converted into the neoliberal subject, right? Are there collectivities that we can imagine that produce new narratives and new stories and new legal statuses and new ways of thinking about things? New collectivities meaning? Well, in cases that I'm interested in, tribal political collectivities. My dad, 50 years ago, wrote a book called Custer Died for Your Sins, in which he said tribalism, by which he both meant a new sort of social imagining and a political identity that was held by Native peoples, right, was one way forward into a new future. Peter Leinbaum. Wow, that's very helpful. Thank you, Phil. I think it's utterly essential what you have just said. And I also like the piece that you wrote about Thanksgiving when you said that what actually happened was a rejoicing, you know, the shooting off of guns and overeating, etc. But when Thanksgiving really means a moment of quiet contemplation and assembly with others, and here I think this is needed more than ever, that we need this time of quiet, mm. this time of rest on a social level, 
not just to end, quote, our anxieties, but in order to begin to think and to talk with one another to solve the issues which you have just stated. And we have many traditions of this. And one of the most important ones is the African-American church and the African-American basis of, of assembly. Amen. So, yeah, I, I look to that. Peter, speak as you write about prisons as a form of enclosure. How do we account for the incredibly disproportionate levels of incarceration in this country? And what did prisons have to do with the rise of... The rise of prisons coincides with the rise of factories. Make the connections that we ought to know. The first prison in, in the U.S., and some say the first prison in the world that's supposed to modify the soul rather than just punish the body, is the solitary confinement of the Walnut Street Jail in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. When it was open, George Washington came, along with other bigwigs, and they set off a hot air balloon, reminding us that surveillance was a principal tool of the state at the time. Oh. Anyway, there is the beginning of the massive prison construction that takes place within, that I know, that takes place within England. As we look back into the grotesque expansion of this as a future for humanity is more and more enclosure, more and more punishment. It is cruel beyond words. And it's the other side of the greed and the corruption at the top is this violence below. And we are very capable of something else. Nicole Hannah-Jones, speak of the road ahead, the obstacles, the resources at your command here. Where are we going? How do we not only wake up, but <laughs> learn something new, learn a new story? <laughs> I can tell you where I'm going, but if you know anything about me, uh, I am not an optimistic person uh, when it comes to these issues. I, you know, literally write in the piece that racism is embedded in the very DNA of our country. So I think that we will continue to go largely the way that we have, which is to be a very unequal, racist country that occasionally makes uh, profound steps forward and then engages in a backlash and uh, goes backwards. So that's where I think <laughs> that's where I think we're going is more of the same. We have to imagine that kind of unhappy ending. But give us a rallying cry. You should ask someone else for the rallying cry. Uh, it's not my nature. This is what I'll say though, and I agree that despite my lack of optimism, we are every day charged with trying to move this country closer to ideals that are just. And if there's something that you can take from the black American experience is that we have believed in this country when we had no reason to. Um, and we have had a faith in this country that this country did not deserve. I think if we can continue to follow the lead of those who have been most marginalized, who have fought to make this country live up to its ideals, that will get us closer there. And hopefully we can convince enough of our our white brothers and sisters to join in that struggle. Philip Deloria, a last word, please. I just want to emphasize what Nicole said. I also tend to be not an optimistic person on, on this front. I don't think these things are going away anytime soon, but we can't just sit back and sort of let them happen, right? I mean, each of us is charged every day to go out and to sort of do good in the world and to do the best that we can. And I think, as Peter said, Finding sort of points of commonality and, and collectivity is one way to think about this. It's our individual charge, and it is our collective charge to try. Yes. Peter Leinbaugh. 
I think it's uh, international. It's worldwide. It's planetary. Mm-hmm. You know, when we look to Bolivia, Chile, Beirut, uh, Hong Kong, people are, are on the move now. And it's worldwide. And here in America, we're more enclosed than elsewhere in our discussions. Present occasion accepted, of course. I am really very happy to be in this discussion with uh, Phil and with Nicole Hannah-Jones. We'll do it again. I can't thank you enough, all of you. Peter Leinbaugh, Philip Deloria, Nicole Hannah-Jones of the 1619 Project at the New York Times Magazine. Onward. Thank you all. Thank you so much for the conversation. It's a pleasure. I, I'm just thinking, I, I don't know if I want to mention it, but I, <laughs> I've been reminded in some way of that last scene in The Deer Hunter, all those lives devastated by the war in Vietnam. And at the end, what do they do around the dining table? They sing, <laughs> God bless America. Uh-uh. Mm. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll, leave that, we'll leave that one out. <laughs> Thank you, people. And let's do it again. Thank you. Thanks, Nicole. Thanks, Phil. As long as the moon shall rise As long as the river flows. Peter Leinbaugh's new book is called Red Round Globe Hot Burning. Philip Deloria's most recent book is Becoming Mary Sully, toward an American Indian abstract. You can find links to the 1619 Project and Nicole Hannah-Jones' podcast about it on the New York Times website. On the Seneca Reservation, there is much sadness now. Washington's treaty has been broken, and there is no hope, no how. Across the Allegheny River, they're throwing up a dam. It will flood the Indian country, a proud day for Uncle Sam. As long Open Source is delighted to be a member of Hub & Spoke, a collective of energetic, idea-driven podcasts. This week, check out Rumble Strip. In her latest episode, host Erica Heilman talks with her friends about turning 50, about Phoenix moments, and hidden depths in the song Total Eclipse of the Heart. Listen in at rumblestripvermont.com and hear all the Hub and Spoke shows at hubspokeaudio.org. Our origin story is all about producers Connor Gillies, Adam Coleman, artist Susan Coyne, engineer George Hicks, and our fearless captain Mary McGrath. I'm Christopher Lydon. Join us next time for Open Source. Shall grow. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.